What's up, boys and girls? Welcome to episode number 18, the Go Figure Podcast. The show is back, back and better than ever. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk always says that, you know, when you're creating content, sometimes it's good to document the journey. And so today I thought it'd be fun if we kind of documented a little bit of our journey in terms of what we're doing and creating pitch decks. And so we're going to be, you know, topic number one is our money topic. And we're going to be talking about five steps to making pitch decks like Elon Musk. And so, you know, actually Ty and I are working on pitch decks for years. We've helped thousands of business owners get financing and funding, our own businesses too, real estate, et cetera. And now we are building a fintech. And so you kind of have to go a different route and a little bit of the venture capital route. And uh, Ty, you know, you and I have been working on this pitch deck. Um, what's What's been your, uh, you know, feeling? I mean, it's it's been kind of difficult, right? Yeah, yeah. Less is more is a very, very tricky thing to accomplish on a pitch deck, for sure. Because it has to be short, concise. Anyway, we're going to dive into that and, you know, some of the ways to make a pitch deck successful. So if you're trying to build that company that can be, you know, a really big growth company and... You know, a hundred, two hundred thousand isn't enough. You're actually going to need to raise a lot more money than that. And you've got proof of concept. You've got experience. So we're going to talk about that. That's uh, our money topic. What's next? Yeah, our mindset piece. We're going to talk about. You know, obviously, hard work is important, but hard work alone will not make you rich. And that's uh, from a very interesting uh, video made by uh, Alex Hormozzi. I've been doing a di- a deep dive of a lot of his content, books, and and programs. Very. Uh, very successful entrepreneur, $100 million uh, exit uh, with three or four of his companies. And so I really, uh, you know, love what he teaches. So we're going to dive into that because you always hear, oh, you got to work hard. You got to work 100 hours a week. And then it's like, no, you got to work smart. And then at some point you got to put those together. So we'll chat about that. And then in our freedom segment, it's where are the top places to start a business in these United States, not even just from a state perspective, but an actual city perspective Sometimes it makes a big difference. You're actually more likely to succeed with a business in certain cities versus and compared to others. So we're going to dive into kind of the top 10 cities and then the top 10 worst cities to start a business in these United States. Absolutely. And then our family listeners out there, right? Those of you that have children, we're going to talk about what you actually should be teaching your children about money and credit and finances because they're not going to learn it anywhere else. Yep, we, they're still not teaching us this in school, so you gotta you gotta be able to put this information together, or your kids are not going to get it. Most of our kids learn finance from their parents, and if your parents don't know it, then that can be very difficult. And so that's where we're out there trying to make that part of our journey, part of our uh, commitment to help people, especially business owners, to get their money, their finances right. That's why we are launching this My Figures app and and uh, making it into a big fintech. And then our final topic will be our sports topic, just kind of a fun one. And, uh, you know, assuming that our schedule stays on on track, we will be choosing who's going to win the Super Bowl, pick, making our Super Bowl picks. That's going to be a tough <laughs> game to pick yeah. on uh, Thursday. Actually, might, might have to do it uh, Friday because I think we have lunch with Isaac on we do. Thursday. So yeah. probably be Friday, probably be a Friday uh, Super Bowl pick episode. And uh, so we're going to talk about the Pro Bowl, the good, the bad, and the ugly that was the first flag football Pro Bowl in the history of Pro Bowls, which was, you know, it had its uh, good things, bad things. Uh, maybe there was even more contact in this Pro Bowl uh, with the uh, flat flag football versus regular, you know, full pads that they've been playing the last decade where there's been zero contact. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to talk about that. Well, that's what we got on 
tap for you guys today. Welcome to the Go Figure Podcast, created for parents and business owners who want to get their money right. My name's Leo Cannell. As a husband and father of five, I've been fortunate to create two eight-figure businesses in the fintech space. This podcast will share the values, principles, strategies, tools, and tactics that have helped us to build a fintech empire and provide an epic life for our family. Having been a parent and entrepreneur for 20 years, there's a lot I don't know. There's been a lot of failure. The good news is together, we'll find solutions to creating an epic life powered by a business that we love. So let's jump into episode number 18, our money topic, five steps to making Pitch decks like Elon Musk. This is, I believe, an ink story. This is an ink story. It says, five steps to making pitches like Elon Musk. The Tesla and SpaceX founder manages to leave his audiences cheering after each pitch idea he makes. The secret all boils down to these simple five steps. So step number one, according to this article, is number one, name your en- enemy identify kind of the problem, the pain points, what's the the big issue that uh, your product or service is going to address and solve. So that was number one. Number two, it says, why now is the time to fix it versus what makes now the the right time and the, the market's ready for your product or solution. Number three, paint a picture of the promised land. I feel like it's almost like the sales process. Like, you know, you teach the sales secrets uh, process to our community. It's almost kind of like that. And then how will you overcome obstacles? And then last but not least, win them over with evidence, client stories, your story. So we've been we've been in the trenches. We're putting together this pitch deck. We need to raise, I don't know, uh, two or three million dollars here for some developers, maybe some additional sales processes and people in uh, the my figures uh, build out this fintech app that we've we've got it live and we need to add uh, some components to it. So when you're naming your enemy, what do you think, what, what comes to mind, you know, and thinking to our own pitch deck that we're putting together, like, what does it mean to really name your identi- enemy, identify the problem, like the pain points? Um, how's the best way you think to identify that? Yeah, you're, as you were saying these things, that's literally what came to mind, Leo. The, the sales training that we provide for all of our reps is you start with the pain, right? Name your enemy, like you said. You get into urgency, which literally right here, why now is the time to fix it? And then you present the solution, which is paint the the picture. So, I mean, that literally is a sales cycle, a sales process put into a pitch deck. And starting out with step one, yeah, name your enemy, find that pain point. Your enemy is just another way of saying your competitors. Who in your space is going to be competing with you? Who do you need to overcome and beat and take over to win that market share and it's very, very important. Not that your enemy should be your sole motivator, but having that enemy is a very, very important step of building a business and gaining that success and having something to reach for. I think it's it's crucial. It's just like a rival in sports. It's almost like you're finding this missing link, this missing solution in the market. So, for example, you know, with uh, with what we do for years, clients, small business owners, we get them loans, lines of credit, we get them all these different accounts. They've got their bank accounts, they've got their investments, they're logging to thirty websites, and they're like, "Wow, how am I going to manage this? This is too confusing." And so we we heard this for years. We're like, "Ah, let's create an app where they can log in, and it's all connected, one place." not 30 different websites. 
And, you know, you've got different competitors out there like a, like a Mint or a Truebill that are have some similarities. Maybe Personal Capital, I think, is another one. But they aren't necessarily put together for a small business owner to manage the business. It's more of a personal consumer type thing. But that's kind of one thing. But when we realize, well, that solves that problem, yes, but it's not enough. And then you start looking at the another problem that entrepreneurs have. And that's, uh, I don't know if I'm actually profitable. And in our previous business... Like things were so, com, com, what do you say, uh, discombobulated. I had no idea if we were making money, losing money, and it soon turned out we were losing money. <laughs> and now when we started this business, the first thing we did was we wanted to bring your dad in, um, who's been a CPA for 30 years, break this down for us. I want to be profitable. but uh, And so he was very helpful in putting that together, and I really did a deep dive. But the majority of small business owners, QuickBooks is very complicated. And so that's another part where, oh, man, I wish I had something simple, automated, that, that was intuitive and knew, hey, you're going to miss this and count this as, a, as income when it's actually not, or you're going to count this as an expense when it's actually not. And so if you had something like that, that would kind of solve the problem. So I'm just trying to give case study examples yeah. of, of this is where you present, hey, here's the problem, and here's what the, the market currently is not solving for this. We're going to solve that problem, and and especially gig workers. Yeah, absolutely. Gig workers, is, it's huge. And Leo, the thing with the pain question is the initial response you get is never the actual pain. That's what people need to realize in, in pitch decks, in sales, whatever it may be. If I ask my clients, well, why are you worried about getting four different credit cards? They may say, well, I don't want to have to log in four different places. If I took that as the pain and move forward with it, I am totally wrong. I am off base. So the follow-up question of, well, why don't you want to log into four different places? Well, then I have to remember four different passwords. Guess what? That's still not the pain. The pain is I'll forget my passwords. Someone will steal my passwords. They'll, they'll get into my accounts. They'll steal my information. They'll steal my data. I'll forget to make a payment. So asking those probing questions, digging and digging and digging is how you're going to get to the pain. And that's something that we've learned in developing this pitch deck. Mm. Having all your accounts in one spot isn't the solution. Giving people the peace of mind is what they actually want. Giving them the ability to see everything and feel confident and comfortable with all of their accounts in one location, that's the pain point. That's what we're solving here, not the, uh, well, it's going to take a little bit too long to log in four different places. So it's it's It almost always, how, how often would you say as you dig deeper into the real pain point that it's actually connected to something more emotional versus logical. 99% of the time. Right. And and so I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to log in all these accounts. But really, in the back of my mind, what I'm really scared of, what I'm really anxious about is, oh, what if I miss something? What if I miss a payment? Um, what if somebody hacks the account? I don't even know that they hacked the account, right? Yeah. What if I get a call Sunday morning from uh, Venmo and, then, and some hackers stole $2,000 from my wife's Venmo account, which, by the way, that did happen on Sunday. But, um, yeah, that's really what people are – it's the emotional. And so getting down to that and solving that worry, that's what really solves the problem. Then. Exactly, exactly. Someone calls in and says, Ty, I need $20,000 so I can start a side hustle on Amazon. Great. Why do you want to start a side hustle? Oh, I need to make a little extra money. And I can run with that and say, oh, they want to make yeah. a little extra money. That's their pain. Or that's I can not say, why. why do you need a little bit of extra money? Well, things are getting a little bit tight. Well, what do you mean? 
my son's turning 16. I can't afford to get him a car or I can't afford to get the groceries that we need. Okay, now you've got the real pain and you yeah. can actually help that person and impact that person. But I need a little extra money isn't going to get you anywhere. No, and, and I want my son to be proud of me. I want him to... You know, exactly. see me succeeding in a business, doing more than just this job that I don't love, and that's that's a why. And so, getting down to that why is super important. So let's let's talk about painting the picture of the promised land, the solution, and the vision. And uh, I almost feel like you should share part of like the uh, the sunglasses analogy and and how you present that. Because um, Ty, we have this community where we teach people how to launch funding businesses, and we teach coaches and consultants and so forth. And so one of the classes we teach is our, our sales secrets class, and Ty teaches that class. And uh, painting that vision of the better life you're going to have with the product or service, solving that emotional problem for you is very important. Yeah, it, it's extremely important. And, and like you said, if those first two steps aren't handled, it's useless. But yeah. if you felt the pain and the urgency is developed, now you're actually ready to change. And if someone can paint the perfect picture of what the solution is to this pain and why it has to happen right now, it's the easiest sell in the world. And, and so with the, the sunglass analogy, kind of similar situation. It sounds silly, but I got off a flight in Phoenix and it was extremely bright. It was a gloomy day in Utah. Didn't think anything of it. Get off the flight in Phoenix and bam, the sun is on me, hitting me like you wouldn't believe. And it hurt. Like I was squinting. I, I didn't even realize this was a big deal and end up at a sunglass hut, which I had never had expensive sunglasses before. I was not, yeah. I didn't really care about that. And I sit down and, and the sales rep comes and talks to me and says, that, well, you know, did you ever think about what the sunglasses are actually doing? Do you think about how you look in sunglasses? It starts asking me all of these questions and made me realize like, you know what? I, I do actually want nice sunglasses. I do actually want to make these changes. And better yet, because there's a buy one, get one half off, I ended up getting two very expensive pairs of sunglasses because they talked about my pain. They talked about the urgency. Can you imagine going out and driving with, in Phoenix with sunglasses that don't actually work with your kids in the back seat? And then they painted that picture of what it's going to do. And I walked away with two pairs of expensive sunglasses. Like it's and then, and then they ask stuff. you, well, hey, you know, how well do you think these $10 sunglasses are actually protecting your eyes? And you're like, oh, yeah, my eyes are kind of important. Maybe I should invest in better protection. That's what a great salesperson does is they ask about what your life's like and why you would choose something so inferior. And, and someone who's good at that will present that in their pitch deck. Yeah, exactly. And so you paint that promised land and then uh, and then you show, okay, great. Well, this is the potential promised land. Now, what are the actual obstacles? Well, you know, I've got to be profitable. I've got to distribute it. I've got to, what is my marketing plan? Do I have a good leadership team behind this business? Because ideas are a dime a dozen, but execution is everything. And then win them over with evidence. And, um, you know, this, this is kind of where you have maybe one of those emotional stories where it's like, yeah. It, for example, oh, my previous business, I never knew if I was profitable and it turned out I was bleeding money. And when I put these rules into place and I knew where I stood from a profit last standpoint, it made all the difference. When I could manage all my money accounts in one place, my net worth started to grow from negative to multiple millions of dollars. And so when you have those stories and then even more powerful stories of clients you've helped showing that your product or service has worked. That's that proof of concept that Damon John talks about in Shark Tank. And when you have a proof of concept, 
now you have an ability you have an opportunity to scale it because your product or service you know brings that type of solution and where we've kind of what's unique about what we've done is we've done it from a service standpoint and now we're trying to translate what we've done from a service standpoint into an actual you know digital online product to help people get their money right get their financing right manage their profit and loss cash flow and build their net worth and so it's been it's been an interesting uh, journey i'm sure it will only get more interesting you know, as uh, time goes by. Yeah, I was uh, talking to one of our advisors last night as I was working on this pitch deck. And one thing that he said to me that that really made a lot of sense, and it's, it's something so basic, but ultimately said, look, with a pitch deck, you're not trying to put everything out there. You don't want to give them the farm. What you're trying to do is get just enough out there to spark a conversation, to get an investor to start asking questions so that you can then answer and give them what they want to hear. It's Again, it is just like sales, but you have time to create this perfect sales pitch. There's, sorry if this is too much, but uh, in sales, back one of my very first sales trainers ever said, "Great salespeople's are strip. You're a stripper, not a prostitute." Yes, 100%. and it's the same thing with the pitch deck. You've got to spark the conversation but not give them way too much. Yeah, if you give them too much, then they feel like, oh, I already know it. It's not going to work. or They have their own idea. But if it's curiosity-based, let me arouse your curiosity with this potential solution to this big problem, but I'm not going to give you all the details until you dig deeper in the process where I can actually show you how it's going to work. And it's almost like uh, in marketing, like when we, when we build out these sales funnels, I'll have a landing page and the headline is everything. If the headline arouses your curiosity and you want to find out more and it's like you know how the number one way business coaches consultants trainers are you know scaling their business to seven figures but you don't give them all the details right but now you're like well i wonder what that number one way is uh oh this guy he probably has no idea but i'm curious and it's almost like you i want to prove him wrong and then you go down the rabbit hole and you're oh he makes a good point or she makes a good point and oh that's a good idea and uh, even though this isn't the best example, the other thing I'll think I'll uh, say in terms of a story that really provides evidence is an uh, in, in, uh, failed, disgraced uh, entrepreneur. Uh, was it Elizabeth Theranos? Was that her name? Yeah. Uh, no, her name. No, her name was Holmes. Is that what it was? Oh man. Anyway, the Theranos uh, founder. She was super charismatic, and she had this story about her uncle that uh, got cancer, didn't know he had it, it was stage four, and he passed away. And so she told this story, wow, if if he'd have had my little uh, blood test thing, we would have known immediately that he had cancer, we would have saved his life. And so she told this story thousands of times. And that one little story convinced people to put up a billion dollars in a product that never existed, and it never did exist. But that's how powerful now, of yeah. course, you would never do that. You would always, you would create a real product that actually does exist and be honest with your investors and people. Um, but that's how powerful a great story. And then obviously, you know, was when uh, Steve Jobs, he would, you know, he would come out every year and, oh, you know, there's a thousand songs in this, uh, this iPod device. And people are like, what? They got a thousand songs in your pocket? That was curiosity. Wait, how you can't get a thousand? So that's curiosity based. Or oh, you're going to be able to watch video on this little uh, phone device that people had never seen that before. And so then all this uh, that's what that's what uh, creates um, curiosity leads to investors, clients wanting to get to the next step. But if you try to explain everything, then you get into mumble jumbo and technical stuff that people don't understand and they tune out. But if you can make it simple. And get their attention, sell the sizzle, yeah. be the stripper, not the prostitute. You're going to be much more successful. 
with your pitch deck. Can I already see that? Our YouTube short in this section is stripper, not prostitute. Stripper, not Everyone's prostitute. Like, What's going Casey? on? Casey? Stripper, not prostitute. <laughs> Seven figures has changed. No. <laughs> That'll be great. All right. Okay. Time for our mindset segment. Hard work alone will not make you rich. This was a video I was watching uh, from Alex Hormozzi, uh the other day. Very uh, interesting video. And, you know, I think about most subjects, there's two sides to most subjects. Oh, don't work hard, work smarter. And so then you'll see people on Instagram, I'm working smarter, congratulations. And I remember Gary Vaynerchuk looked at some guy and he's like, great, mother bleeper, you work harder, I'm going to work hard and smarter. Now now what are you going to do? <laughs> so there's this idea and, and one statement isn't necessarily completely right. But if you're not working smarter and harder, that's a problem. And th- I've really come to the realization that if you aren't doing high leverage activities, then that's where you're going to have slow growth in your business. So let's break this down. So here's the main point. Hard work is vital, but does the 30-year hardworking janitor or landscaper, reminds me of uh, a guy who used to do landscaping at BYU for a minute there. But so you work at that job really hard, and you're a hard worker, and you're a good person, and you've got values and principles, and that's awesome, but you're not going to get ahead financially. You can work as hard as you want. They might have very small increases, and unless you're able to save a lot of money and invest it in a business or real estate to actually provide financial independence, that person is never going to be wealthy, never going to have freedom. They're not going to be able to travel. They're not going to be able to provide the life they want to for their family. A lot of you listening or watching, like maybe you've been in that boat. I've been in that boat, and that's that's what drove me to take action. But So hard work alone is not going to get us there. Um, and according to Alex, he's saying, hey, yeah, it's important, but work has little to do with the highest levels of the game. So, for example, he'll say, well, hey, Warren Buffett, I mean, he you know, makes two decisions a year. He reads for five or six hours a day. He goes to McDonald's. He drinks his Coke because he's invested in both. I don't know how he's still living into his 90s. That's what he does. <laughs> And uh, But he's not working 100 hours a week, right? He makes a couple of investment decisions. And if he makes two good decisions a year, he's really happy. And his growth has just been exponential. So an example of somebody who is doing things at a higher level because he's got leverage. And he doesn't have a huge organization, but they manage so much money, that's the leverage. So managing something bigger. Um, Alex says the same hours in the day you need leverage. So when you think of you know working hard versus working smarter leverage, like what is what comes to mind of examples of that or or when hey I worked hard but I sort of hit a ceiling. There's only you know 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week. I can only do so much. But when I added this piece of leverage, now I could do more. What do you think are some of those examples of leverage that made a real difference in your life and business? Yeah, I mean, when, when you were talking about this, Leo, I, I immediately just start thinking of our friend Tyler, um, who had a father-in-law who came here from, I believe, was it Ecuador? I, yeah, I, I can't remember. I think Ecuador. South America. Um, and he was working doing construction and always on a job, nonstop, work, 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 and just barely scrapes by. I just barely paying the bills. Tyler comes in and says, you know what? What are you doing? You have all this expertise. You have all these clients. What do, what do you say we hire 10 people, take on more jobs, you, meaning you don't have to work as much. You, you can use your expertise and go over and help at different projects, little bits at a time. And they now are doing 
well over one, two, I, I think they did almost $2 million in, in revenue last year, as opposed to 200000 on this guy just grinding and coming home exhausted every single day. And it's just going out and leveraging having employees, right? Get, learning the business side of how this works. We had someone commenting on a YouTube video of ours just, I think it was our last show, saying, yeah, I'm working 10 to 13 hours a day. Yeah. I'm not getting by. You know, I'm, I'm excited to have a conversation with this individual and say, well, how many jobs are you turning away because you're the only person working on this job versus going out and hiring and getting employees? And we've experienced that. We Sometimes it's scary to hire, but if you do it the right way, that's the only way you're going to actually grow. So the number one way that you can leverage to begin as a small business owner or entrepreneur is you have to convert from being a solopreneur into an actual entrepreneur. If you're a solopreneur, you're really good at doing the uh, the technical thing that you're really good at. So when we first started, you know, you were at these events across the country, bringing in clients, uh, doing the initial sales work. I was back in my home office um, doing the actual funding work, doing the fulfillment. So you were the sales, I was the fulfillment. And the two of us could bust our butt and work 60, 70 hours a week. And we might both cap out our incomes at $150,000, $200,000 a year because there's only, there's only two of us. There's only 168 hours a week. But if you can take that specialized knowledge and now create a team, employees, and have them do those jobs and, and break that process down, and they only do one part of the process, and another does another part of the process. It reminds me of Henry Ford when he came up with the uh, assembly line. He had, instead of one person trying to do five or ten things, he had one person doing one thing, and he was able to get out so many more cars and make massive where he might make, you know, a 10% profit on each car. Now he had thousands of cars being made instead of 100 cars a month, and that changed everything. It's a, So it's the same thing. Whatever it is you do in your business, maybe you're an accountant, maybe you're a marketer, maybe you're a chef, whatever it is, and you can do one thing really good, but if you can teach others to do that thing and then manage and grow that business, and now most people are doing it, leveraging people is a great way to grow your business. And now instead of you working in the business always, you can work on the business. And so if you don't have leverage of building an organization, a team, then you go on vacation, you stop, you stop making money, right? You, um, you know, get sick, you stop making money. You don't work 80 hours a week, you lose a few clients. But when you have a team in a business organization, that's one way to leverage. Let's look at some other ones. So Alex talks about um, volume of activity versus leverage of activity. So again, if it's just you and I doing the work, you know, we hit a ceiling, but if we have 25 people doing the work, now we can help a lot more people. We can create a much more profitable business. So that's the next thing. And so basically what he, what he asks is, what are the highest leverage activities you can do in your business? And so for us, for example, it's even more higher leverage than just people. For example, we can do marketing and go out and find one client at a time that needs financing. Maybe you're a business coach. You can do marketing and bring one person in at a time who can become a client. But what if, what if you could find a strategic partner who already has a hundred of your clients coming in every single month to their business. And if you can provide a benefit to that person, they would send all your business every single month. And so that's for us. It's like, well, what if we find that accountant who already has a thousand of our potential clients who need financing, he or she can send those in 
And so instead of looking for one person who needs funding, what if I look for 100 accountants who have 1,000 clients each to send in? And so if you can create that type of leverage in your business, and I just uh, we just had a guy on the podcast, uh, the Seven Figures Club podcast uh, last week. He's had eight exits, and he talked about that. And he has this book called Viral Something, where basically the action you take leads to more clients versus just helping one client. Yeah, that's a great example what you just used there, Leo. Like when we talk about hard work, we could get a list of business owners. We could get in the the yellow pages and just start cold calling and grind and grind and grind and work so hard. And maybe after two two weeks, we only get maybe five clients. Or we go out and we find, like you said, a referral partner, someone that already has our clients and has our leads. Yes, now we're still going to work extremely hard, but we're going to do that significantly more effectively and efficiently. And I think a lot of that is determining what works for you beforehand, finding your limitations, finding your boundaries before you decide to really engage in that hard work, right? It's like if if I decide at this point in my life, I want to be a defensive lineman in the NFL, I can work as hard as I want. And that is never, ever, ever going to happen. So you need to figure out what your realistic limitations are, and then determine to work hard very, very effectively. And I'm glad you brought up uh, the football example. It's so appropriate on Super Bowl week. But uh, this is one of the things he talks about. You don't go and and hire 10 running backs. You know, in a football team, you have to build out a team. And the very best entrepreneurs are not the quarterback. They're not the star of the team. And that's the problem that a lot of entrepreneurs, I think I've had that problem, where you're like, oh, no one can do this better than me. I have to do this important job. And instead of teaching and training and bringing in great people. And if you bring in the right people, they'll actually be better than you. And that's what you want. You want smarter, better, more capable people that you can bring in and plug into these great opportunities. And they can do that and you manage it. So the best entrepreneurs are actually coaches. They're not the quarterback. They're not the running back. They're not the center. They're in the back. They're bringing the right people in, putting them in the right positions, making sure that we're bringing in deals, that we're growing the business, that we're living uh, our values and principles as an organization. And that's who's growing the business is the really good coach, the Bill Belichick of the world who can put all the pieces in the right spot. He's not actually executing. He's not on the phone with the client. He's not doing all the work, but he's putting people in the right spot and he's training them and giving them the tools. And the other thing they have is systems and processes. Yeah. And so you have been our COO in implementing systems and processes. If you're doing all the phone calls, all the texts, all the emails, and you don't have automation, like, what are some examples of automation that you can leverage in your business uh, with systems and processes that people don't really understand? I mean, I think the the most simple one that a lot of companies don't have out there, which shocks me, is following up on contracts, right? You take all of this time, energy, effort, not just generating the lead, not just getting the lead on the calendar, but then pitching that lead, getting to the point where that lead wants to move forward and you send them a contract, Contract gets buried in the email. The, the client forgets about it forever. And that happens with a lot of industries. But having a text follow-up series that goes out automatically because the human element, they'll forget. Your sales reps will forget to follow up on contracts. But guess what? A CRM that says the contract was sent at this exact date and time, if it is unsigned 24 hours from now, send this text. If it remains unsigned 48 hours from now, send this text. 72 hours, send this text. Meanwhile, you're also sending emails like, 
little follow-ups on the contracts, I think are the quickest way that you can boost your amount of signed deals, boost your revenue, because you're losing a lot of people that just simply don't see the email or they forget about it. It gets lost and your reps will not follow up. They, they may be really good at follow-up, but they're not going to be 100% accurate. Whereas a CRM, a phone system with even something as simple as Zapier to create a follow-up thread, I mean, that's going to be the quickest way to boost those signed deals. So you can be like typing all the texts, typing up all the emails and their original things every time, or you have an automated version that plugs in the, the client's name and it's automatically communicating with them, not once, not twice, but every step and stage of the process, not only your clients, but your partners, your strategic referral partners who are sending in business, you're keeping them in the flow. Maybe you have a tracking software that they can log into and see how their clients are doing. And, and that leads me to an affiliate program, right? If you're building an affiliate program, now you've got a number of amazing salespeople out there who are sharing your programs, you're paying them a commission. And one of the uh, biggest mistakes I see is people get started early on and they're super stingy in paying out referral fees and affiliate commissions. And while you want to make sure you're profitable, like you've got to incentivize people. And if you have a great affiliate program, that is a very powerful way that you can absolutely grow your business and take it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. That And the, the one thing I'd add on top of that, Leo, is the ability to make a payment via text or email. Oh, like so It important. is 2023. If someone has to call you to give you a credit card number to pay your invoice, you're missing out on a lot of money. It, make it happen. It's 2023. If you need to schedule a call with us, we'll make it happen for you. There are so, so many different ways to click a link and pay an invoice. Make it happen. Make what this about all those people out there? They're like, the only way you can pay me is to send a wire transfer. And you're like, what the hell are you doing? A wire <laughs> transfer, that's it. I want as many ways to get paid as possible. Venmo, PayPal, credit card, debit card, ACH, wire transfer, Stripe, every single way, QuickBooks, invoices. We've got like 10 different ways that you can make payment to us. You can finance your payment with eFinance. There's so many different ways that you can make payment. And if you don't have easy ways to receive payment, you're losing out on business, period. Yeah. Anytime someone says, all I take is a wire transfer, red flags start going like crazy. It's like, you scared of a chargeback or... What's 100%. going on? Or are you just that outdated that you don't know how to accept a credit card? So. And, and there's this risk of doing business. But at the end of the day, when you deliver value to people and, and you've got the reputation and the online reviews, like you're not afraid. Very few people are going to charge back. And those that do, you'll prove that you did your job on the business and fulfilled exactly what you promised to the letter of the contract. And you'll win nine out of 10 of those uh, chargebacks. I remember like our first five or six chargebacks, I was all scared about them and we won every single one of them because we did the job. Yeah. So there it is, guys. That was a fun little concept there. The hard work alone will not make you rich, but some high leverage activities that you can do to grow exponent exponentially and not just um, linear growth, if you will. All right. Time for our next topic, which is the freedom topic. What are the 10 freest places, best places to start a business in the country? Let's uh, look at these. And here's here's what uh, this is from LendingTree. This is a LendingTree article, oddly enough, which is uh, pretty interesting. And so here's the things that they looked at. They looked at um, how high taxes are in this area, in this area of this city and state. 
what, what are housing costs like? Is it super expensive? Is the cost of living high? And then do the government policies that are in place there, do they make it hard for you to start a business? Like you have to ha- go through all this red tape or do they make it easy? So drum roll, please, John. Here we go. Here's our top 10. All right. Number one. Wow. Rally, North Carolina, apparently number one. Number two, Austin, Texas. Number three, Charlotte, North Carolina. Number four, Durham, North Carolina. We got uh, three out of the top four are from North Carolina, according to Lending Trees article. Uh, Boise, Idaho. Minneapolis, Minnesota. Portland, Oregon. All right, I'm going to be honest. I am shocked about the Portland, Oregon one. I don't know that I agree with that one. I've been there a couple times the last two months. It didn't seem like it was super easy, but okay. Salt Lake City, Utah, and Provo, Utah, right up there at the top. Nashville, Tennessee, St. Louis, New uh, Missouri. So there we go. There's our top ten. Let's look at that. So Texas, we know there's no state income tax, so that's helpful. We know taxes are pretty reasonable in North Carolina. Idaho, it's easy. You know how much it it costs to set up a business entity in California? I think it's a a minimum of $800. It is. It's like $800 plus a few just to get the little registration done. In the state of Utah, I think we're $75 to get a business entity. So you can spend $75 to get set up in Utah. And then even if you're in California, you're like, "Ah, I'm going to set my business entity up in Utah, the state of California will still get you. They'll find out and they'll still charge you that $800 or $1,000. And then they have these bonus taxes in addition to the regular taxes. Um, I remember uh, PBD, one of our mentors, talking about he was in this this certain city in somewhere in Southern California, and they're like, oh, we have a bonus tax for the county. that wasn't state income tax. It's like this extra tax that no one else taxes businesses, and it was going to be like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's when he's like, all right, we're moving out of California. We're moving out of this place. So that was a top 10. What do you think are some of the, you know, what makes these places great? Uh, and again, it's tough to know. They're all somewhat different. But what do you think they're doing to make it easier for businesses? I, kn- I know with North Carolina, what's interesting, we just had two of our, Casey, who I know is watching this, two of our, our team members actually moved to North Carolina. And I was pretty surprised by how affordable real estate is out Very there. Affordable. So I think that's yeah. a huge part of it for North Carolina. And North Carolina has a very, very, very strong financial presence. Like Bank of America is headquartered right there. Their fintech is absolutely booming. So I think there's just by being in business out there, you have a lot of local opportunities to get access to gain access to capital. Um, It's kind of it's not super overpopulated yet. So there's still a lot of opportunities there. North Carolina doesn't surprise me at all. Austin. I mean, Texas, I definitely thought Texas would be on the list. Austin does surprise me a little bit. There are a lot of government handcuffs there. Um, I thought that'd be more of a, you know, Dallas area. I I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Austin, uh, you know, definitely has a harder, heavier-handed government. I know they were shut down a lot uh, during the last three years. So a little surprising there, but I know it is part of Texas. And a lot of people have really flocked there, and, a, and the population has increased significantly. Uh, Boise, Salt Lake City, Utah, Idaho, not a big surprise. So, I mean, I guess the, the one uh, big common denominator out of all these cities is the states that they're in and the cities they're in are, are pretty, you know, pretty pro-business. They make it easy for the business to get off the ground. They keep taxes within reason. 
and they don't add a lot of red tape. So not not surprising. Again, I think the biggest surprise there, Portland, Oregon. Um, that one does seem surprising to me, but hey, you know, Lending Tree's making this decision, so we'll see. All right, so here's their top 10 worst places to start a business. Number one, Bakersfield, California. Number two, Stockton, California. Fresno, California. This is weird. This is all these, uh, I can't imagine them being worse than like Los Angeles and San Francisco, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Toledo, Ohio. Riverside, California. I had a branch uh, once uh, in Riverside, California in 2015. It wasn't too bad. Uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Honolulu, Hawaii. Not surprised. Dayton, Ohio. Scranton, Pennsylvania. So for all of you that watch The Office out there and and Michael Scott, it was tough for them to keep uh, keep his paper business uh, going all those years. I know uh, our President Joe. President Joe is from uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, born and raised there, and then, of course, uh, went to Delaware. Uh, Wichita, Kansas, uh, number 10. So there we are. There are the top 10 worst places to start a business in 2023. Let's talk about what is it that makes it easier, like just thinking to get off the ground. So you start your business. you got to set up a bank account. you got to get registered with the state. Um, one of the, the tricky ones you don't always realize is you have to actually get your uh, business license from yeah. the city. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe we have, if we've renewed our business license, I might have to check on that. <laughs> Send that's, in the that's fire marshal. I, what, I what else that's a huge problem in California. Like it's not just the cost, the license. It's yeah. like literally the, the way that they send in the fire marshal and they just nitpick every oh, little they take forever. Thing. Exactly. Like you could be all ready to roll and it can be two, three months before you can even open doors. And that can be tricky in the early yeah. phase of business. But you know, I look at this list and there's two things that come to mind when you look at the bottom 10. Number one is the government making it so hard to come, like to actually open your doors, which I see that for all of the California ones. Oh, yeah. Outside of California, I see the biggest issue is hiring. Like some of these, That's these locations, a really good I think, would be very time. tricky to hire really in Scranton. I think it'd be tricky yeah. to hire in Wichita. Like that. That's a huge point. Where are talented people residing who would be great staff for your business? One of the blessings we've got to be in here in Utah County. In Utah here is we've got, you know, several universities with uh, and a lot of technology companies and population is growing. And so we've got an amazing workforce here uh, to be able to select and find great people. And we have amazing people here on our team. And that's not always the case. Some of these other locations, that's not going to be the case. And a lot of those, you know, locations in California, other people are leaving and the cost of living is a big part, right? Yeah. So if you want to attract a lot of young talent and you're like, well, good hell, I can't afford that $800,000 house uh, that's 1,000 square feet down the street in California, I'm going to move to Utah or I'm going to move to Colorado or I'm going to move to Idaho or even you know, Arizona where the cost of living is not so incredibly high and expensive. So that's a big part. So if you're starting a business and you want to start a business where there's a lot of high talent and you can attract great people to work at your organization, you have to think about that. Is where you're living a place where talented individuals want to live? And at the end of the day, too, I think you have to say, you know, uh, you're going to probably lean towards hiring younger people because they're going to be, you know, a little bit more uh, energetic, driven, ready to roll, uh, depending on the, on the position, especially entry-level positions and sales positions. 
And if there's, you know, not a lot of young people in your area and there's not a lot of attractive things and the cost of living is exorbitant and the taxes are high, I mean, that's going to be a problem. So you've got to think about, you know, starting your business somewhere where you can have great talent, affordable cost of living, the taxes are reasonable, and there's not so much red tape that you're wasting months and months to get the business off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. The I think the talent piece is huge. And I was looking at a lot of those lit names on the the top 10 and a lot of them do have pretty good prominent universities right there yep. very very Not close surprising. by and you look at some you know Brigham Young University University of Utah and shockingly enough call centers absolutely thrive right yep, there so location is very very important based on your business which also goes the other way like if you're an e-commerce business you do no business in the state that you're living in everything is online. You don't have to have your business in that state. Talk to a good tax professional, talk to a good attorney. Just because you live in California doesn't mean your business has to be in California. No question. <clears throat> All right, guys, time for the family segment. Uh, what you need to teach your kids about money, credit, finance. We always say this, uh, whether we're you know on a stage in event across the country or we're talking with one of our uh, Strategic partners, we say, listen, I don't know about you, but no one taught me about credit, money, finance in school like it just wasn't taught. And my oldest, you know, just graduated from high school, finished his first year at the University of Utah. And while they can be really great at teaching engineering and calculus and all sorts of complicated stuff, they don't actually teach money, finance, credit, and they don't teach sales either, which I find very yeah. disturbing. So, Let's let's talk about some of the important things that you should be teaching your children that your school is probably not. Number one, good debt versus bad debt. Like, how would you, you know, classify good debt versus bad debt? Good debt would be taking on debt with an expectation, an educated expectation of a greater return. Bad debt would be taking on debt with no expectation of a greater return. Right, a TV. If you're going to go into debt to get a TV, that is bad debt. There's no expectation of a greater return. You're not going to charge your friends ten bucks an hour to come watch your TV. That's a very bad debt. A good debt, taking on debt with an educated expectation of a greater return, starting something like an Amazon business, starting a, a side hustle as a, a loan broker, right? Whatever that may be, that would be considered a good debt, in my opinion. Now, for a lot of young kids out there, there's this big question of, well, hey, I'm going to get student loans. That's a great investment in my future. Getting that student loan is going to allow me to get that college degree and that MBA, and it's going to really pay off big time. And uh, one of my mentors, uh, interesting guy, again, uh, Alex, uh, that we've been uh, following here, he actually was accepted into Harvard into their MBA program. And he had money saved up, and he looked at how much he was going to take out in student loans, multiple six figures, and he's like, it's going to take you know three or four years, cost yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars, and afterwards, you know, I, I have a good opportunity to get a good job somewhere, or I can start a business, start my own gym, and I think in the next few years, I'm going to be further ahead, have no student loan debt and be making a lot more money and get wealthy quicker. So that was the bet he made. And he left uh, Baltimore, didn't go to Harvard, went down to California and uh, started his first gym. And uh, fast forward a few years later, and yeah, he's now worth $100 million. And he's learned and he's grown and he's found mentors and he's invested in himself and uh, he avoided all that student loan debt. And so for people looking at, well, should I go to college and get that student loan? Well, you better do your homework. 
I mean, even if you're going to be a, a doctor, uh, like my brother uh, went to Ohio State Medical School, but I mean, that's 300 grand unless you live there. And for a lot of people, when they get into medical school, like you, they have to go where they get accepted, where the best opportunity is, and the student loans are exorbitant. And so if you're not making a great return, that's something that you better consider very strongly, or I'm going to call that bad debt. Absolutely. I, I don't think you should ever take out debt for your undergrad. Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have proven that you can work while you go to school. 100%. You can do that for your undergrad, for your bachelor's degree. Now, if you're going into, like you said, you want to become a doctor, you want to become an attorney, you finished your, your undergrad and you're ready to go into more specific, whatever you want to call that, you're working on your doctorate. Yes, at that point, I can kind of see taking out a student loan to actually become a doctor, but you should never, that is a bad debt to take out a loan to work on your undergrad that may or may not lead you anywhere. That That's a bad debt. No question. So, you know, good debt in my mind from a personal standpoint, a mortgage is probably okay as long as you, you know, did your homework and didn't overpay for the home. And hopefully you're in an area where there's population growth and it's very likely that, that the value is going to continue to increase, you didn't buy a home on a busy street, um, you know, just different things like that. And hopefully, instead of buying that really expensive home, hopefully your first homes are, you know, homes that could be rental properties, duplexes that you can earn money on and have cash, uh, cash flow and interest write-offs. Those are things that a lot of people make the mistake of, well, let me buy the expensive home instead of buying other homes that can become rental properties and they'll win the real estate game a lot quicker doing that. But in terms of credit, I feel like it's okay if people are getting mortgages for real estate investments and their home that they live in. Car loans are okay as long as you're not getting crazy expensive cars, and cars are getting more and more expensive by the day. Boy, if you want a Suburban for your family, you're going to get... You're going to probably get raped on that one. But those are not the worst things because you're not paying that much in interest. But all the stuff where you take out loans for, you know, other things that don't earn you any money, we're going to have to call that bad debt. But if you take out loans or financing to build a business or to even invest in yourself, and and I'm not talking about a $100,000 student loan, but hey, maybe there's a five or $10,000 training program to teach you how to launch a side hustle Amazon business or to you know, learn how to build a finance business or whatever it is that, and you're learning from someone who's actually done it. Well, when was the last time one of your professors started a business and did it successfully? Oh, probably never. And yet they're going to teach you about how business works, right? Yeah. And, and Leo, case in point here, because the, the topic, right, is, is which of these things do we need to teach our kids? Because they're not going to learn in school. And I thankfully had very, very sound advice as a child. Like my parents, I remember two instances one, I really, really wanted this pocket bike. It was like a little bullet bike for kids. It was four or 500 bucks. And guess what? My parents were not contributing a cent. I had to save my money yes. and I had to go pay that in cash. On the other hand, there was an awesome aerator and I was, I was renting it and aerating lawns, renting it and aerating lawns and making good money. But I went to my dad and said, hey, I really want to buy this. I can make way more money if I buy this, but I don't have the money. Will you give me a loan? And he actually broke it down, figured out a payback plan and everything. And my father was willing to loan me the money because it was a debt with an educated expectation of a greater return. So they wouldn't loan me the money for the pocket bike, but they would loan me the money for the aerator. I think that is a phenomenal lesson to yes. teach your children. 
I love it. I love it. No, and, I, and I've had uh, my, my two oldest boys have done uh, curb painting when they were, you know, both turned uh, 13 years old, and I bought them the, you know, the initial 100, 200 bucks of getting those supplies to go do curb painting and go door-to-door and learn sales skills and, and how to run a business. And they would each, you know, usually hire a friend, whether it's their younger brother or an actual friend, to <laughs> come out and, and help them uh, do the business. And they both have learned great skills in doing that. Uh, my daughter just started her dance studio in our basement, and uh, that's another opportunity. She's still in high school. She's learning about sales, marketing, accounting, good debt, bad debt, you know, all those things that they don't teach us in school. So if you can teach them to, you know, grow a business, that's going to yeah. be, you know, very effective. Like give them. give them real life examples of, of good debt and bad debt and let them, let your children fail. Right. I, I can tell you there was definitely times I went into the store trying to buy this and I didn't do my math correctly and I was short a few bucks and my mom said, well, keep saving. We'll be back here again in a few weeks. And even though it's to your parents, nothing to throw a couple extra dollars on the table, but allowing your kids to fail so that they truly understand their money is going to help them learn and grow. Absolutely. And then in terms of credit, there's there's kind of two sides, right? If you don't educate your child about credit and they go out and take about a bunch of credit cards out to go on vacations and trips while they're in college and waste money and buy clothes and stuff, that's a problem. But at the same time, if you don't teach them to establish credit, then by the time it comes time to buy a house, they have no credit and they actually can't buy a house unless they have the cash to do it, which most of those kids are not going to have. And so you have to teach your kids how to establish credit, you know, not pay interest, keep credit card balances paid down, but use them smartly. You know, if you can teach them that, hey, if you can pay some bills with a credit card, you'll build credit. Now pay that off every month. Let's not pay any interest. Let's be disciplined with it. And then, you know, let's get a reasonable car with a reasonable car loan, start building some credit. So when the time comes to be able to invest in real estate, to be able to buy that first house, they actually have the credit to do it. And one of the saddest things you'll see is people who have not done that, or you'll see someone who went through a bankruptcy and never established credit afterwards, and they're not going to be able to qualify until they actually start building credit again. You know what's interesting is they, they've actually proven that poor credit is generational. Like oh, yeah. you, you hand that down to your kids who hand it down to their kids. And so if you're watching this and you're one that you have bad credit, or you don't understand credit, you don't know how your credit works, you don't know what the different credit scores are, you don't know about the three different bureaus, you don't know the algorithms that create your score, then do your generations that will follow you a service right now and go take care of it. Because that is something that you will pass to your kids and they will pass to their kids. Like good credit is something that it it takes work. It's not like you said, it's not going to be taught to you in school. Maybe they'll tell you what a credit score is, but they're not going to talk to you about what percent, right? Inquiries make up 10%. Utilization makes up 30%. They're not going to break that down. Go figure that out for yourselves and and save a lot of frustration and pain and heartache for your generations to come. It's true. A lot of people think, oh, I made my, my payments on time. My credit score is perfect. And then you're like, well, that only makes up 35% of your credit. 30% of it is how you utilize credit cards and revolving credit and if you can keep those balances, you know, lower, then you're going to actually have a higher credit score. No one teaches us these things. And then it becomes this big shock and this big surprise, you know, when it's time to actually qualify for something yeah. important like a house or hopefully even better, a rental property that's going to make you some cash flow. I hear this one all the time, Leo. Oh, I've got great credit and great history. I've been a, 
unauthorized user on my wife's credit card oh, for 10 years. Yeah, that's and that's, that's it. Well, guess what? That doesn't work anymore. Credit changes. You have to constantly stay up on it. No question. Well, uh, we're rolling down to the end here. Are we out of time, John? We're out of time, aren't we? Yep, we are out of time. All right, we'll have to get to the uh, Pro Bowl. So we'll talk about football, the Pro Bowl, and, of course, make our Super Bowl picks on Friday at uh, noon Mountain Time to 1. So uh, look for the notification. If you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, make sure you ding that bell. Get those notifications. Sub- subscribe to the channel. Uh, comment. Uh, give us uh, questions, ideas for any other future topics you want us to talk about. And uh, in addition, make sure you share the show. Share the show with other entrepreneurs, side hustlers, people who want to get their money right, who are interested in learning about credit finance, want to take care of their family, value freedom, value entrepreneurship in this country because it's going to solve our problems. Thank you for joining us on the Go Figure Podcast. If you learned something that will help your business or family, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star. If we added value to your day, then share the show with someone who wants to get their money right and be sure to subscribe to the Seven Figures Funding YouTube channel. If you're a business owner and a parent committed to getting your money right for your family, then check out the MyFigures.com money app with a free 30-day trial to manage your money, track your net worth, and build a profit-first business through our fintech platform. God bless, and we'll see you next time on the Go Figure Podcast.